Chapter Sixteen of Book One of Les Miserables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Karen. Les Miserables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book One, Chapter Sixteen, How from a Brother One Becomes a Father. At that same moment in the garden of the Luxembourg, for the gaze of the drama must be everywhere present, two children were holding each other by the hand. One might have been seven years old, the other five. The rain having soaked them, they were walking along the paths on the sunny side. The elder was leading the younger. They were pale and ragged. They had the air of wild birds. The smaller of them said, I am very hungry. The elder, who was already somewhat of a protector, was leading his brother with his left hand, and in his right he carried a small stick. They were alone in the garden. The garden was deserted. The gates had been closed by order of the police on account of the insurrection. The troops who had been bivouacking there had departed for the exigencies of combat. How did those children come there? Perhaps they had escaped from some guardhouse which stood ajar. Perhaps there was in the vicinity at the Barrière d'Enfer, or on the Esplanade de l'Observatoire, or in the neighboring Carrefour, dominated by the pediment on which could be read, Invenerunt parvulum panis involutum some Montbank's booth from which they had fled. Perhaps they had on the previous evening escaped the eye of the inspectors of the garden at the hour of closing, and had passed the night in some one of those sentry-boxes where people read the papers. The fact is they were stray lambs, and they seemed free. To be astray and to seem free is to be lost. These poor little creatures were, in fact, lost. These two children were the same over whom Gavroche had been put to some trouble, as the reader will recollect. Children of the Thénardier, leased out to Magnon, attributed to Monsieur Guillenormand. And now leaves fallen from all these rootless branches and swept over the ground by the wind. Their clothing, which had been clean in Magnon's day, and which had served her as a prospectus with Monsieur Guillenormand, had been converted into rags. Henceforth these beings belonged to the statistics as abandoned children, whom the police took note of, collect, mislay, and find again on the pavements of Paris. It required the disturbance of a day like that to account for these miserable little creatures being in that garden. If the superintendents had caught sight of them, they would have driven such rags forth, Poor little things do not enter public gardens. Still, people should reflect that as children they have a right to flowers. These children were there thanks to the lock gates. They were there contrary to the regulations. They had slipped into the garden, and there they remained. Closed gates do not dismiss the inspectors. Oversight is supposed to continue, but it grows slack and reposes and the inspectors moved by the public anxiety, and more occupied with the outside than the inside, no longer glanced into the garden, and had not seen the two delinquents. 
It had rained the night before, and even a little in the morning. But in June showers do not count for much. An hour after storm it can hardly be seen that the beautiful blonde day has wept. The earth in summer is as quickly dried as the cheek of a child. At that period of the solstice the light of full noonday is, so to speak, poignant. It takes everything. It applies itself to the earth and superposes itself with a sort of suction. One would say that the sun was thirsty. A shower is but a glass of water. A rainstorm is instantly drunk up. In the morning everything was dripping. In the afternoon everything is powdered over. Nothing is so worthy of admiration as foliage washed by the rain and wiped by the rays of sunlight. It is warm freshness. The gardens and meadows, having water at their roots and sun in their flowers, become perfuming pans of incense and smoke with all their odors at once. Everything smiles, sings, and offers itself. One feels greatly intoxicated. The springtime is a provisional paradise. The sun helps man to have patience. There are beings who demand nothing further. Mortals who, having the azure of heaven, say, it is enough. Dreamers absorbed in the wonderful, dipping into the idolatry of nature, indifferent to good and evil, contemplators of cosmos and radiantly forgetful of man, who do not understand how people can occupy themselves with the hunger of these and the thirst of those, with the nudity of the poor in winter, with the lymphatic curvature of the little spinal column, with the palate, the attic, the dungeon, and the rags of shivering young girls, when they can dream beneath the trees. Peaceful and terrible spirits they, and pitilessly satisfied. Strange to say, the infinite suffices them. That great need of man, the finite which admits of embrace, they ignore. The finite which admits of progress and sublime toil, they do not think about. The indefinite, which is born from the human and divine combination of the infinite and the finite, escapes them. Provided that they are face to face with immensity, they smile. Joy? Never. Ecstasy forever. Their life lies in surrendering their personality in contemplation. The history of humanity is for them only a detailed plan. All is not there. The true all remains without. What is the use of busying oneself over that detail, man? Man suffers, that's quite possible. But look at Aldebaran rising. The mother has no more milk, the newborn babe is dying. I know nothing about that. But just look at this wonderful rosette, which a slice of wood cells of the pine present under the microscope. Compare the most beautiful Meckling lace to that, if you can. These thinkers forget to love. The zodiac thrives with them to such a point that it prevents their seeing the weeping child. God eclipses their souls. This is a family of minds which are at once great and petty. Horace was one of them. So was Goethe. La Fontaine, perhaps. Magnificent egoists of the infinite. Tranquil spectators of sorrow, who do not behold Nero if the weather be fair for whom the sun conceals a funeral pile, who would look on at an execution by the guillotine in the search for an effect of light, 
who hear neither the cry, nor the sob, nor the death rattle, nor the alarm peal, for whom everything is well since there is a month of May, who so long as there are clouds of purple and gold above their heads declare themselves content, and who are determined to be happy until the radiance of the stars and the songs of the birds are exhausted. These are dark radiances. They have no suspicion that they are to be pitied. Certainly they are so. He who does not weep does not see. They are to be admired and pitied, as one would both pity and admire a being at once night and day, without eyes beneath his lashes, but with a star on his brow. The indifference of these thinkers is, according to some, a superior philosophy. That may be. But in this superiority there is some infirmity. One may be immortal and yet limp, witness Vulcan. One may be more than man and less than man. There is incomplete immensity in nature. Who knows whether the sun is not a blind man? But then what? In whom can we trust? Solum quis dicere falsum audiat? Who shall dare to say that the sun is false? Thus certain geniuses themselves, certain very lofty mortals, man-stars, may be mistaken. That which is on high at the summit, at the crest, at the zenith, that which sends down so much light on the earth, sees but little, sees badly, sees not at all. Is not this a desperate state of things? No. But... What is there then above the sun? The God. On the 6th of June, 1832, about 11 o'clock in the morning, the Luxembourg, solitary and depopulated, was charming. The quincunxes and flower beds shed forth balm and dazzling beauty into the sunlight. The branches, wild with a brilliant glow of midday, seemed endeavoring to embrace. In the sycamores there was an uproar of linnets. Sparrows triumphed. Woodpeckers climbed among the chestnut trees, administering little pecks on the bark. The flower-beds accepted the legitimate royalty of the lilies. The most august of perfumes is that which emanates from whiteness. The peppery odor of the carnations was perceptible. The old crows of Marie de' Medici were amorous in the tall trees. The sun, gilded, empurpled, set fire to and lighted up the tulips, which are nothing but all the varieties of flame made into flowers. All around the banks of tulips the bees, the sparks of these flame flowers, hummed. All was grace and gaiety, even the impending rain. This relapse by which the lilies of the valley and the honeysuckles were destined to profit had nothing disturbing about it. The swallows indulged in the charming threat of flying low. He who was there aspired to happiness. Life smelled good. All nature exhaled candor, help, assistance, paternity, caress, dawn. The thoughts which fell from heaven were as sweet as a tiny hand of a baby when one kisses it. The statues under the trees, white and nude, had robes of shadow pierced with light. These goddesses were all tattered with sunlight. Rays hung from them on all sides. Around the great fountain the earth was already dried up to the point of being burnt. There was sufficient breeze to raise little insurrections of dust here and there. 
a few yellow leaves left over from the autumn chased each other merrily and seemed to be playing tricks on each other this abundance of light had something indescribably reassuring about it life sap heat odors overflowed one was conscious beneath creation of the enormous size of the source in all these breaths permeated with love in this interchange of reverberations and reflections in this marvelous expenditure of rays in this infinite outpouring of liquid gold one felt the prodigality of the inexhaustible and behind the splendor as behind a curtain of flame one caught a glimpse of god that millionaire of stars thanks to the sand there was not a speck of mud thanks to the rain there was not a grain of ashes the clumps of blossoms had just been bathed every sort of velvet satin gold and varnish which springs from the earth in the form of flowers was irreproachable this magnificence was cleanly the grand silence of happy nature filled the garden a celestial silence that is compatible with a thousand sorts of music the cooing of nests the buzzing of swarms the flutterings of the breeze all the harmony of the season was complete in one gracious whole the entrances and exits of spring took place in proper order the lilacs ended the jasmine began some flowers were tardy some insects in advance of their time the vanguard of the red june butterflies fraternized with the rearguard of the white butterflies of may the plantain trees were getting their new skins the breeze hollowed out undulations in the magnificent enormity of the chestnut trees it was splendid a veteran from the neighboring barracks who was gazing through the fence said here is a spring presenting arms and in full uniform all nature was breakfasting creation was at table this was its hour the great blue cloth was spread in the sky and the great green cloth on earth the sun lighted it all up brilliantly god was serving the universal repast each creature had his pasture or his mess the ring-dove found his hemp-seed the chaffinch found his millet the goldfinch found chickweed the redbreast found worms the greenfinch found flies the fly found infusorii the bee found flowers they ate each other somewhat it is true which is the misery of evil mixed with good but not a beast of them all had an empty stomach the two little abandoned creatures had arrived in the vicinity of the grand fountain and rather bewildered by all this light they tried to hide themselves the instinct of the poor and the weak in the presence of even impersonal magnificence and they kept behind the swan's hutch here and there at intervals when the wind blew shouts clamors a sort of tumultuous death rattle which was the firing and dull blows which were discharges of cannon struck the ear confusedly smoke hung over the roofs in the direction of the all a bell which had the air of an appeal was ringing in the distance these children did not appear to notice these noises the little one repeated from time to time i am hungry almost at the same instant with the children another couple approached the great basin they consisted of a good man about fifty years of age who was leading by the hand a little fellow of six no doubt a father and his son the little man of six had a big brioche at that epoch certain houses abutting on the river in the rue madame and d'enfer had keys to the luxembourg garden of which the lodgers enjoyed the use when the gates were shut a privilege which was suppressed later on this father and son came from one of these houses no doubt 
the two poor little creatures watched that gentleman approaching and hid themselves a little more thoroughly he was a bourgeois the same person perhaps whom marius had one day heard through his love fever near the same grand basin counselling his son to avoid excesses he had an affable and haughty air and a mouth which was always smiling since it did not shut this mechanical smile produced by too much jaw and too little skin shows the teeth rather than the soul the child with his brioche which he had bitten into but had not finished eating seemed satiated the child was dressed as a national guardsman owing to the insurrection and the father had remained clad as a bourgeois out of prudence father and son halted near the fountain where two swans were sporting this bourgeois appeared to cherish a special admiration for the swans he resembled them in this sense that he walked like them for the moment the swans were swimming which is their principal talent and they were superb if the two poor little beings had listened and if they had been of an age to understand they might have gathered the words of this grave man the father was saying to his son the sage lives content with little look at me my son i do not love pomp i am never seen in clothes decked with gold lace and stones i leave that false splendour to badly organized souls here the deep shouts which proceeded from the direction of the Al burst out with fresh force of bell and uproar what is that inquired the child the father replied it is a saturnalia all at once he caught sight of the two little ragged boys behind the green swan hutch there's the beginning said he and after a pause he added anarchy is entering this garden in the meanwhile his son took a bite of his brioche spit it out and suddenly burst out crying what are you crying about demanded his father i am not hungry any more said the child the father's smile became more accentuated one does not need to be hungry in order to eat a cake my cake tires me it's stale don't you want any more of it no the father pointed to the swans throw it to those pomipeds the child hesitated a person may not want any more of his cake but that's no reason for giving it away the father went on be humane you must have compassion on animals and taking the cake from his son he flung it into the basin the cake fell very near the edge the swans were far away in the centre of the basin and busy with some prey they had seen neither the bourgeois nor the brioche the bourgeois feeling that the cake was in danger of being wasted and moved by this useless shipwreck entered upon a telegraphic agitation which finally attracted the attention of the swans they perceived something floating steered for the edge like ships as they are and slowly directed their course toward the brioche with the stupid majesty which befits white creatures the swans signes understand signs signe said the bourgeois delighted to make a jest at that moment the distant tumult of the city underwent another sudden increase this time it was sinister there are some gusts of wind which speak more distinctly than others the one which was blowing at that moment brought clearly defined drumbeats, clamors, platoon firing, and the dismal replies of the tocsin and the cannon. This coincided with a black cloud which suddenly veiled the sun. 
the swans had not yet reached the brioche. "'Let us return home,' said the father. "'They are attacking the Tuileries.' He grasped his son's hand again, then he continued. "'From the Tuileries to the Luxembourg there is but the distance which separates royalty from the peerage. That's not far. Shots will soon rain down.' He glanced at the cloud. "'Perhaps it's rain itself that's about to shower down. The sky is joining in. The younger branch is condemned. Let us return home quickly.' "'I should like to see the swans eat the brioche,' said the child. The father replied, "'That would be imprudent,' and he led his little bourgeois away. The son, regretting the swans, turned his head back toward the basin until a corner of the quincunxes concealed it from him. In the meanwhile, the two little waifs had approached the brioche at the same time as the swans. It was floating on the water. The smaller of them stared at the cake. The elder gazed after the retreating bourgeois. Father and son entered the labyrinth of walks which leads to the grand flight of steps near the clump of trees on the side of the Rue Madame. As soon as they had disappeared from view, the elder child hastily flung himself flat on his stomach on the rounding curb of the basin, and clinging to it with his left hand, and leaning over the water on the verge of falling in, he stretched out his right hand with his stick towards the cake. The swans, perceiving the enemy, made haste and in so doing they produced an effect of their breasts which was of service to the little fisher. The water flowed back before the swans, and one of these gentle concentric undulations softly floated the brioche towards the child's wand. Just as the swans came up, the stick touched the cake. The child gave it a brisk wrap, drew in the brioche, frightened away the swans, seized the cake, and sprang to his feet. The cake was wet, but they were hungry and thirsty. The elder broke the cake into two portions, a large one and a small one, took the small one for himself, gave the large one to his brother, and said to him, Ram that into your muzzle. End of Book One, Chapter Sixteen, Recorded by Karen